0: Let's turn uh, together, I would invite you to turn with me this morning to Second Samuel. If you were with us uh, this last year and, and up through, I think, about the beginning of November, so it's been several months ago, uh, we completed our study of the first book of Samuel. And uh, our, my preaching schedule, as is often the case in God's providence, has changed a bit. I had not planned to return to 2 Samuel for another couple of months. Um, we were coming close there, but another couple of months. The, um, the, the reason, other than a sense of leading by God and the Holy Spirit, is that uh, the other couple of series that uh, we have planned to do and that I've planned to, to go through with our church are relative to our being in the new facility. And we have backed that up a few times, as construction normally goes and takes longer than it is supposed to. Uh, and so it, it has changed the preaching schedule a bit. And so what we're going to do instead is we're going to go ahead and begin 2 Samuel now. And I'm very excited about that. I hope you're excited about picking the story up and uh, seeing what happens with David. Uh, but But what we'll do is we're going to take breaks from the study to take up those things that we would have been doing had we already been in the facility. So to give you a little bit of a uh, a, a teaser, if you will, or to think about where we're headed. We're going to do a series on giving uh, that I think is going to be important in life of our church as we look to uh, taking on some debt and paying off a building and uh, what that looks like in the life of God's people, how we can honor God with the way that we give, not only of our money, but of our time as so we move into a new community and uh, have new ministry opportunities, increased opportunities for more and more time investment into ministry and into that community. So we're going to do a series on giving, but we'll also, we'll, we're will also we also going to do a series on our church uh, in in the form of uh, our church structure particularly related to church membership uh, as we look to in a few months approving uh, the the changes to the constitution that hopefully you have received and that you have been made aware of and that you've hopefully been reading and considering and praying about and one of those changes is uh, finally a uh, the addition of a church covenant that will be signed by our church members as we come together as a family and we make covenant promises to one another. So leading up to that, we want to do a small series on our church and particularly on church membership and what that is and what that looks like and why, in some, um, to some degree, we do it the way that we do. So uh, today, then, we're going to go ahead and turn our attention back to the book of Samuel. Uh, we're going to begin 2 Samuel. We're going to look at only the first 16 verses of chapter 1. Second Samuel chapter 1 verses 1 through 16. Uh, we're going to read these together. We'll look and see what God would say to us. This is as connected to First Samuel 31 as it is to the story of Second Samuel. First Samuel. Uh, we have the story, in, in, I guess in the most general sense, the, the, the topic of the story is that of Saul and his life. And in 2 Samuel, the, the, the topic of the narrative is going to be David and his kingship and life. But David's kingship and life is not really taken up until chapter 2 of 2 Samuel. So we have this uh, interim chapter that gives us some explanation about uh, what happened in this time after Saul has died. And David has returned back to his home at Ziklag. So we're going to look at Second Samuel chapter 1 uh, together. Before we do, let's pray. God, this is your word. And um, we come to it now gratefully, expectantly. and, And God, with some humility... So we recognize that we are desperately in need of your illuminating work in our hearts and in our eyes, that, that we might receive it rightly, and that we might read and understand it rightly, that we may be convicted by it rightly. And God, anytime that's not the case, we understand that the problem is not with your word, it's with us. And so we pray that you would help us as we now uh, seek to learn from your word, that you would use it to teach us and to train us in the grace of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, Second Samuel uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. It says, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David retur- remained two days in Ziklag, And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and he paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me. And when I answered, Here I am, he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took and I took the crown that was on his head, and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. And David took hold of his clothes, and he tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Okay. So so in 2 Samuel chapter 1, in these first few verses, I want us to consider really two problems and then to take up two important questions. Okay. Two problems. and. It's important that we deal with these problems. First, there's a textual problem. And then second, there's a moral problem. And many people come to this text and they have some issue here. They have some question here. So I think it's important that we take these up. If you remember back at the end, the closing chapters of 1 Samuel, of the first book that we looked at together, there was a bifurcation in the story so that it it sort of divided into two separate paths where it told us the story of Saul and how his life ended and his kingship ended, and then it told us the story of David and how, uh, how, at least in that first book, how his life went and where he found himself and his victory over the Amalekites and returning back to his home in Ziklag. The problem is that there would have been no knowledge In one of the stories of the other, what I mean is that David would not have had any way to know what had happened to Saul or to the Israelites who had gone out to battle against the Philistines. For David had taken his couple of hundred men, if you remember the ragtag band of his uh, military guys, and they had gone to fight against the Amalekites that had taken his women and children. Remember, he, he goes to his home and he finds everything burned to the ground. So Saul is after him and now he comes home and he finds that this, uh, all, all, of, you know, all of this is, is done and, and, he, and he goes out to pursue the Amalekites. And he goes and he slaughters the Amalekites and he slays them and he gets his women and children and they return home. And so there would have been this probably extended journey as it would have been some miles from where they were back to Uh, back to the the land, the home at Ziklag. In the meantime, Saul and Israel are gathered out on Mount Gilboa fighting against the Philistines that have arisen against them. And they have fallen and they have been slain. And David does not know of the fate that Saul experienced. If you remember, uh, we know from 1 Samuel chapter 31, I'm turning back just a couple of pages there, you remember that Saul ends up in such despair and his sons have been killed and he looks at his armor bearer his servant and he and he tries to compel him to take his life and to kill him and he won't and uh, so Saul falls on his own sword and he takes his own life but that leads us then to the first problem and that is a textual problem doesn't it if you even just listening to what I just said if, if, if you're a careful reader of the text you don't even have to be that careful of a reader then what you know is that the account of 1 Samuel 31, that is given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God by the author, uh, tells us what happened to Saul. But then when you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1, which would have been right next to it in the original single book of Samuel, the very next chapter tells us of a different fate. And a, a lot of opponents to Scripture want to look at this passage, among many others, and say, well, the Scripture, see, is contradictory and cannot be trusted. And I guess that's one option. I mean, what are the options? You know, one, one option is that the author is an absolute moron, that, that, that he is totally confused and uh, unable to to, to to even keep his own story straight, and that there is evidence now that Scripture is totally untrustworthy, that it is not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that it is not perfect and right as it reflects the God that authored it? Because he did not. It was merely authored by sinful men that were confused and were writing with their own agenda. And I guess that's one option, but I don't have to tell you that that's not a good enough option for me. Um, Another option is, I guess, that uh, if, if you take some sort of generalized, moralistic approach to Scripture, you can say, well... It may be a bit contradictory, and it may not be totally right and totally true, and it may not be totally uh, inspired by God, but it doesn't really matter as long as you get something out of it. So it doesn't really matter if this text lines up with the text of 1 Samuel 31. The question is not whether the text is true to itself or to the story. The The question is whether or not the text speaks to you. Well, friends, it doesn't really matter what you get out of the text. It matters what the text is trying to tell you. And and those two things are not always in line, are they? So the goal of what we do when we study Scripture is to open God's Word and to receive, not to project. We don't want to project our own understanding and get out from Scripture something other than what God is trying to say. And it's easy for us to profane Scripture that way and to prostitute it for our own benefit such that we read it that it speaks to us and that it teaches us and tells us something maybe that we want to hear, something that we long to hear, but it's not something that it actually intends to say. It's a very dangerous thing, isn't it? That also, as I probably do not have to tell you, is not an option for me. If, as a faithful uh, Christian, you believe in the inspiration of Scripture, that is, that God authored it as he inspired men by the power of his Holy Spirit to write down his words. Well, God cannot write a contradiction. God cannot lie, and his word is totally true and totally perfect and, uh, because it, it, it reflects his character. And, and so the question then is, what, what are we to do with this text? Well, frankly, this one is not that difficult. If, as an opponent of Scripture, this is where you're turning to disprove Scripture, you're not trying that hard. There are much more problematic places in Scripture, it seems to me, than this. Let's consider the simple story, the, the, the nature of what's being told. In 1 Samuel 31, where we're told the details of Saul's fate, and we are told that he fell on his own sword and took his own life, We are being given the historical narrative by way of account. In other words, the topic or the subject of the account, the historical account given in 1 Samuel 31, is Saul. When you get to 2 Samuel chapter 1, the account is not given to tell us what happened to Saul. The subject of the account is to tell us what happened with David and his hearing of what happened to Saul. Now, that may seem like a fine line to you, but it's really important that we understand. In other words, the, narr- the, the, the the author is simply recording the historical events as they happened. And what happened in 1 Samuel 31 is that Saul died by falling on his own sword in the midst of battle after he was wounded and his sons were killed. What happened in 2 Samuel chapter 1 is that David hears of the death of Saul and that of Israel on Mount Gilboa and their faith by way of an Amalekite messenger who tells a story. But the reality is he lies. And the text doesn't ever encourage his story as true. In fact, he pays with his life for the story that he tells. So it, was not, it did not go well for the Amalekite messenger. But, but do you see the difference? And I'm not splitting here. So that's an important difference to make. The historical account of 1 Samuel 31 is to give us the, the details of what happened to Saul. The point of 2 Samuel 1 is to give us the details of when David hears of what happened to Israel. And it just happens in God's providence to hear from an Amalekite messenger that tells a fib. So the reality, folks, is there's not a textual problem. In no way does this mean that the text is somehow contradicting itself. He is recording the events as they have here, and you may be thinking to yourself, well, why in the world would he tell a story? How do we know that it's a lie? Well, if you, when we get to 2 Samuel 4, what you'll see is it says that the Amalekite messenger, David said, he came to me and he brought Saul's, you know, his, his bracelet and, and, and these artifacts that he brought to prove that he had done this thing that he fabricated actually doing in order to receive a reward. Let's put, our, let's put ourselves for just a moment in the shoes of the Amalekite. What had just happened to the Amalekites? David had slaughtered them. And this Amalekite was a sojourner in the land of Israel, in, in Saul's company, if you will. And he manages to escape, and he sees that the king, the, the, the king existing has just been killed in battle by the Philistines. So it's a tough day for Israel. And it would have been no secret all through Saul's camp particularly, but probably at large through the land, that someone else, this man David, has been anointed the future king, the next king, the new king. And here you are in Amalekite, sojourner in the land, and you're thinking to yourself, this is not going too well for me. The king in whose company I have been sojourning in the land is now dead, and the king that is anointed to be is just done slaughtering the Amalekites. He's probably looking for any way he can to get in the good graces of the new king. So he takes the artifacts from Saul and he rushes to David. And he comes into Ziklag and he fabricates this story Hoping for a reward, I don't, when we get to Second Samuel 4, I don't know that that's a reward as far as like a ransom or, you know, some sort of money, hoping to give David information that David might have longed for, and so to receive some sort of financial reward or something like that, I think the reward would have been the blessing of the king. He was looking for positional security. Does that make sense? So he fabricates a lie. So there's no textual issue really here. Um, you just have to understand what the purpose or the subject of the two narratives are. The second problem, however, is close on the heels of the first, and that is there is a moral dilemma with David's actions here. Right? If you read the text, one must ask the question, and some do, how in the world is, J, is David justified in executing a man for something that he did not do? Because if it's a lie, and it is, and David executes him for doing something that he says he did, but they did a crime he did not actually commit. And I would argue that there really is no moral dilemma at all. Um, The reality is, number one, the man self-identified as being a lawbreaker. And he had the artifacts, the proof, and we we, want to project our 2016 Western legal worldview into this type of text, we want to project that and say, you know, where was the burden of proof? Where was the trial? Where was, you know, innocent till proven guilty? Well, on the one hand, they didn't live in the same structure, legal system. They didn't have the same type of uh, situation that we now have that we understand and want to read back into it. But to some degree, he brought the proof with him, didn't he? He lays down the armlet, uh, he, he, he lays down these artifacts. Look at verse 10. So I stood beside him and I killed him, he said, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took his crown. You can, you can see him talking to David. Here you go. I took his crown and I took his armlet that was on his arm and I've brought them here to you, to my Lord. And, and he says, and I killed him. And notice when David does send the executioner down in verse 16 and David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I've killed the Lord's anointed. And and we know that it was wrong, that it would have been a sin to take the life of the king under any circumstance because David had already refused to. To commit this sin a couple of times before now, remember we saw David with the opportunity standing over King Saul and his armor bearer and the guys with him, they want to take Saul's life. And David says, no, 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 we're not going to raise our hand against God's king because this would be a sin for us to do. And then when King Saul asks his armor bearer first Samuel 31, he asks him to kill him. What does the armor bearer say? No. Who am I to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed? I'm not going to kill, I'm not going to take his life either. And so when this Amalekite strolls in claiming to to, to have done and, and giving to some degree the evidence of having done what David would not do and knew to be wrong and what Saul's armor bearer would not do and knew to be wrong, he was then to be held accountable. So I don't, I don't think there's any moral dilemma here. Uh, but, you know, pe- pe- people are quick, I think, to, Rush to judgment and to want to project sort of their own understanding of what justice is and what justice looks like. Uh, I think David, particularly as the future king of Israel, though he had not been placed in that position just yet, it's coming very shortly. Knowing now that the king has died and getting this news, I think there would have been all the reason in the world for him to be justified in taking the life of the one who sought the life of the king of Israel. So there are these problems, but I don't, I don't think they're big problems, and they should not cause us to question our Bibles. And I know that may not be—I uh, hope that's helpful to you as you study Scripture, but that may not be really encouraging to us this morning. But, friends, these type of issues are very important that we look at and deal with in the text. But now I want to turn to a bit more practical part of this lesson and what we can learn from it, and that is to answer two important questions. What do we learn more than just how to study Scripture and that the Bible's not contradicting itself, that there's no reason to uh, distrust our Bibles. What do we learn practically from this type of maybe a bit odd story and chapter in the Bible? And I, I, think, I think, first of all, we have to ask ourselves the question, why was David sad when the news of Saul's defeat came? I mean, if you're like me, when you read this story for the first time, you have to be wondering to yourself how is this bad news? How how is this a sad day for David? David's been on the run for years. David has come so close on number of on a number of occasions to having his life taken by Saul himself. And by his henchmen, as he has pursued through the wilderness, David has lived the life of a vagabond and a nomad, someone outside of the camp. He has been wallering in caves and living in the wilderness. he has been separated from his wives and his children, all because King Saul has wanted him dead. Meanwhile, knowing that according to God's promise, he would be the king of Israel as soon as Saul was terminated. And so this Amalekite comes and he tells him, I've killed him. At Mount Gil- Gilboa, I was there and I saw him and his son Jonathan dead. But then look at verse 11. And David immediately took hold of his clothes and he tore them. It's a sign of mourning. And so did all of David's men with him, probably at David's instruction. This public act of mourning and sadness, and they mourned and they wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son. And for the people of the Lord, that is the people of Israel, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Why was David sad that Saul was now dead? I think we can learn a really important lesson, and I'm going to try to show you. I think, number one, Saul was sad because God's people had suffered. Notice it was not just on account of Saul and or Jonathan that he was Brought to mourning and weeping, no it says he mourned because the people of Israel had fallen that day and and what we need to understand is that it was a terrible, bloody, sad day on Mount Gilboa that 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 mountain that that, that side had been splattered with the blood of the covenant people of God Almighty. They were laying strewn about, dead body upon dead body, having been conquered and defeated by the pagan Philistines. He mourned because God's people had suffered. He mourned because God's king had fallen. Apart from Saul's wickedness and apart from his attempts at David's life, The fact remained, as David recounted when he had the opportunity to kill Saul himself, and he said, who am I to raise my hand against God's king? Friends, the fact remained that God in his sovereignty, God in his providence, God in his wisdom, this God almighty in whom David trusted, he had appointed Saul as king. And until he saw fit to remove him, David was to be subject to him. As much as he was poss- as much as was possible. And it is a sad day. When he says that he had fallen. I think David knew that he had fallen, maybe on account of his own sin. Remember, Saul refused to slaughter the Amalekites the way that God had commanded him to do, and so he was told by Way of the prophet Samuel that you will pay and your kingship will be removed and your sons will be killed and your heritage will not ascend the throne because of this sin that you've committed. Saul had fallen into sin. God's king had fallen into disrepute. He had fallen into isolation and ultimately he fell in battle. And for David, it was a sad and a terrible thing for God's king given for God's purposes to have experienced such a fate. And we're going to see this as we turn next week. If you look over to verses 19 and 20 there as the David offers this poem, we're going to see this second half of this chapter next week. But just look how it begins. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. It's a sad day. And David is mourning the suffering of God's people and the suffering of God's king. But it's not only these temporal, physical Uh, things that he mourns. I think David mourns this news because he knows that the authority of God had been usurped. He ends up angry with the Amalekite. Why? Because this Amalekite had been the agent of sin that had taken what God had appointed, that had gone over God's head and walked in front of his providence and had committed this sin against King Saul, at least according to his own Words And David had every reason to believe him because he offered these artifacts by way of proof. And I think God was concerned about the sovereign authority of the God that he served. I mean, this Amalekite had done what David was not willing to do. But fourthly, I think he was mourning because not only God's authority had been profaned or usurped, I think because he found no delight in the downfall of his enemies. This is a neglected aspect, I think, of the Christian life. Proverbs 24:17 tells us that we are not to delight when our enemies fall. You say, well, why? I mean, as I said a moment ago, shouldn't this have been a good day? Why was this a, a day of sad news against uh, uh, for, for David? I don't think he took any delight, even in the destruction of the wicked. Because on, because on the day of, the, of their destruction, they faced their judgment. See, see, the call of the Christian life is to love our neighbor as ourself, isn't it? I mean, that's the teaching of the New Testament, to lo- love, love your neighbor the way that you love yourself. To have a view of your neighbor that loves him so much as to care for his soul. And if even toward the wicked and toward our enemy, we long for their destruction, then what we long for is their final realizing of their judgment and fate before a mighty and holy God. And I think to some degree, we are not to delight in the fall of our enemies and of the wicked that oppose us because it is a sad day when any Sinner must stand before God and give an account of his own sin, not having had it atoned for by the blood of Christ. We must not forget what we read in Ezekiel 18, again in chapter 32, and again in Ezekiel 33, where it says, Say to them, God says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn from your evil ways, he says, for why should you die? Let us, let us not forget that it's a sad day when the sinner has to stand in the court of God and give an account for his own sin. Without the blood of Christ to give, to, to, to pay the penalty They they stand under condemnation and judgment. And I think that David was of such a righteousness and of such an integrity that he did not delight in the fall even of his greatest opponent, Saul. Even in his wickedness, because he knew that he would have on that moment stood before God. I think he also mourned because the power of God had been mocked. What happened when the Israelites fell at Mount Gilboa? They took Saul's body and they removed his head and they took his head to one place and put it and stapled it to a wall. They took his body to another place and they stapled it on the wall. And the news was flying through the streets of all the Philistine cities with the destruction of the covenant God of Israel that his people have been slain and his king has been slain because he is powerless and impotent to save them. I think he saw the authority of God and the glory of God at stake. And I think he saw God being mocked. See, it was a sad day when Saul fell. And David mourned that day. And the reality, friends, is this. David saw in his life much more important realities than his own well-being and temporal happiness. Let me say that again. The truth that we learn from David here is that there is much more important things for Christians to concern themselves with than our temporal happiness and well-being. What, what sort of perspective do you have? What sort of perspective do I have? I think David understood the gospel humility that we learn about in John chapter 12 verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will keep it or save it for eternity. Jesus tells us, speaking with regard to our own temporal needs, like what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink or what we're going to have on the next day, not to worry about all those things, but to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of the rest of these things will be added to us. Friends, how far past our navels are we able to see? In other words, are we so busy staring inwardly and and concerning ourselves and fretting over and despairing over the troubles and the difficulties of our own life that we fail to see and be concerned with more of the things that God cares about and is concerned with? What sort of perspective do we have? Are we able to see beyond our own navels or past our own noses? To put it more pointedly, as we learn here from David... Do we mourn when the people of God fall? Do we weep when the church is damaged? Are we angry when God's name and his glory are mocked? Are we broken for the wicked when they stand before God in their own unrighteousness? Or is everything good as long as our life is good and our job is secure and our marriage is stable and our children are healthy? See, friends like David, we have to ask ourselves the questions, are we moved by and burdened for kingdom realities? Friends, if Christians, if the church was, I think, I, think, I, think the, I think we'd be much more effective, and I think the world would be a very different place. So the first question, why was it a sad day? Because David did not only concern himself with his own temporal happiness and well-being, but he had a kingdom perspective. And he was concerned for the things that God cared about. And then very quickly and finally, what's the second question that we must ask ourselves? What's related to the first? But it is different. The first question is, why was he sad at this news? But the second one is, why was he angry? Why was he angry with the Amalekite? So much so that he would execute him for killing Saul or for the news that he received. Well, I think the immediate or the legal or the temporal reasons have been made clear enough to this point in the sermon. So I don't want to rehash them. I mean, the Amalekite would have known the law. He would have been held accountable to that law. David would have been justified in taking the life of the one who sought God's king and usurped his authority. But why was this such a big deal to David? I mean, at the end of the day, he was not yet king. It was not yet his job to enact justice necessarily. What was the problem? Why was it such a big deal to David? And I think the answer is exactly what we saw when David refused to take the life of Saul himself. And that is simply this, that he did not want to ascend the throne through sin and or violence. Why was it such a big deal to David that this act had been done through sin? Because David was a man of integrity that understood this truth. The ends do not justify the means. That we cannot go about accomplishing these good and right things in the end and using whatever the result of our actions are to justify the sinful actions that may have got us there. We must do all that God asks of us and requires with integrity and with patience and with simple trust in the providence of God. In other words, I think it would have been easy For David to have taken advantages of the opportunities God gave him, to have usurped God's authority and taken Saul's life himself, I think it would have been easy for David to justify his actions or the actions of the Amalekite and even rewarded him and said, well, look, everyone's better off. I now get to be king. Israel's better off. No longer are they led by the terrible tyrant, the crazy, wicked Saul. You know, everybody's better off. It's a better situation. Thank you, Mr. Amalekite. It doesn't really matter what you did or how it came to be. Would have been easy for him to justify the actions, but friends, just because in God's providence we can do something does not mean that we should. There, I'm going to give you a very practical, a real illustration. In, in Christian counseling, I have married people that have come to me on staggeringly on numerous occasions that have that find themselves either longing for someone other than their spouse and who maybe someone they work with or somebody that they have uh, come into contact with, they've built a relationship with, or maybe they are already involved with someone other than their spouse in, in some sort of affair, be it physical or emotional or both, whatever the case may be. And they come, I think struggling with this sin in their life and looking for ways to justify it. And you, and you know, the kind of things they say, well, they're twofold. Number one, they say, well, this is better. I mean, I, I'm happier. My husband and I all we do is fight all the time. My wife and I it's not a good situation for the children. They're constantly exposed to anger and bitterness and we're not happy. We're walking through life angry and and ultimately this is making me happier. This is making me better. This is better for my children. This is a better situation. Do you see what they're saying? They're they're looking at what they perceive to be the ends that they think are good and using that end, a better situation for her or for the family or for him or whatever, to justify their sin of adultery and their sin of walking out on their spouse. So on the the one hand, they, they try to justify the means, but you know what the other justification is? Well, I didn't want to love this person. And fair enough. They say, I, I didn't ask to have this wonderful person come into my work or come into my life. You know, you know who provided this opportunity? God did. And if God hadn't wanted me to, to be a part of this relationship and to be with this person, why would he have brought them into my life? And why would they be so wonderful? And why would I have these feelings that I didn't ask for that, 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 that are so strong for this other person? Do you see what they're saying? Because I can, I should. I should. Friends, God gives us opportunities to do things wrong all of the time. (laughs) Simply because you can does not mean that you should. And friends, may we remember that the ends never justify the means. Why Why was David so angry that day with the Amalekite? Because David had walked toward the throne, patiently trusting in the providence and the sovereignty of God. And he saw in this Amalekite a willingness to usurp God's authority that made him angry. Because he did not want to ascend the throne, he did not want to accomplish the ends by sinful and violent means, and so he knew that uh, that that this Amalekite must pay for his sin. Friends, this is a, I guess in some ways a, a peculiar story, um, but I think it's a story that we can learn a great deal from. Uh, and I, I think if you, I think if you zoom out. And try to take a, an, an overall perspective on, on all that I've articulated so far this morning. I think the encouragement of the story is simply this. God is sovereign. In his providence, he is working all things for your good. Let us not be so consumed with the situation or with ourselves or with what we want and desire to accomplish that we fall into sin and fail to trust him. Let us content ourselves with the sovereignty and providence of a good and a gracious God. And let us seek to be moved by that which moves him. Let's pray. God in heaven, uh, thank you for the truth of this text. Thank you for your word that is right and good, that is holy and perfect. Lord, thank you for this... Uh, this story, this history where you're working in David's life and you're putting all of these pieces together in order to accomplish your purposes for him. Thank you that it's been given to us where we can read and understand and by it be encouraged to trust you. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to do just that. Not to walk ahead of you, but to walk with you. To allow you to lead us and to trust in your providence and in your goodness. Uh, to know that you are working all things for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.